and welcome back to the Chris Yeh podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh, and I am delighted to be joined today by Mona Moshid, who is an amazing guest. You're going to hear a lot about her life story and about the work that she's doing. And then we're going to talk about the topic of blitzscaling in the social sector, because Mona is doing that very thing right now. So without further ado, let me bring Mona to the stage. Mona, thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Mona, you've had quite a fascinating journey. Can you talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Because you began in Egypt, then you went to Stanford and MIT, you worked for McKinsey, and then you turned your back on this for-profit world, and now you're helping people with their careers. How did this happen? So the story really begins with the role that education has played in my family's life. Um, and it really actually starts with my father. Um, so my father grew up under very impoverished conditions in Cairo um, to the extent that he had to study at night underneath a street lamp because his family couldn't afford electricity. And he studied so hard that he was one of the top performing students on the national high school exam. And that got him a seat at Cairo University it then propelled him to a, to a postgraduate degree in the US. He and my mother enabled many education opportunities for me. And so that enabled Stanford, that enabled MIT. And then when I joined McKinsey, I very much wanted to begin by working in the Middle East. And so I was part of the startup team for McKinsey's Middle East office based in Dubai. Um, and through serendipity um, while I was there, this was the time when many of the countries of the region were deciding to invest very deeply in improving their school systems. So my start in education was actually at the K-12 level, and it was very much about supporting school systems to improve their literacy levels, numeracy levels, graduation. And there is this very distinct moment when I thought, okay, you know, if I if we can just get everyone graduated, it will be okay. And then I realized that it wasn't. Right. So they were graduating, but they weren't going on to college. They weren't able to get jobs. And as you know, the Middle East has one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. You know, so this is now around the time of. 2010, 2011, when literally 40% of youth in the region were unemployed. Um, and this was also the time of the Arab Spring. And I had begun working now much more on what we call the education to employment system. So what is it that is getting in the way? You have all of these unemployed youth. And at the same time, you have employers saying they can't find the skills they need for even entry-level positions. Um, so this work began in the region, um, but then you began to see things happening globally. And I was looking and I saw the Occupy movement, which started in Wall Street, but obviously spread across the world. And so much tragedy and discontent across the youth population because they, across the world, because they felt they were doing all the right things. Like they, they were going to school, they were studying, they're graduating and the jobs just aren't there for them. So that then led to a series of education to employment reports that um, I led while I was at McKinsey. And then the idea for generation happened, um, which is when we looked at literally hundreds of youth employment programs across the world, there are many terrific ones, but 
the spectrum tends to be either those that are serving millions or hundreds of thousands, but they have a very low employment rate, you know, so 10 to 20%. And then on the other end of the spectrum are these programs that do wonderful training and then placement into jobs, but they tend to serve hundreds of people annually. And so the question became, well, could there be something in the middle, right? So can there be a global train in place program that literally is able to serve tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands on an annual basis and have high employment and be low in terms of, or lower than what was currently the case of um, dollars per student. And that led to Generation. So Generation is a global youth employment nonprofit. We recruit, train and place learners into careers. We started in 2015, um, and we're now in 15 countries, and we serve, and we've served 43,000 graduates to date, with an 83% job placement rate. Um, and the work is just getting started. Well, that is fantastic and amazing, and that leads me to ask a question that investor types always ask, which is, what's the secret sauce? Because you just explained why typically at high volumes people have very little impact. Or if they have very, if they have high impact, they have very low volumes. You've been able to do both. What has enabled you to make generations so successful? So we have seven steps in the generation model. Um, we begin by pre-confirming job vacancies. So we know that the jobs are there before we start training our learners. Then we recruit our learners. And when we recruit our learners, we're always looking for profiles that are different than what employers would traditionally hire. So if it is a male dominated profession like tech, we're searching for the females. If it is something where you need to have a university degree, we're getting the secondary school degree holders and the vocational degree holders and getting them into these roles. If it's professions where there's low representation of people of color, that's precisely where we are recruiting. So then, so we recruit our learners. They then go through a boot camp that is four to 12 weeks long and it's profession specific. So we work across 30 professions today, ranging from tech to healthcare, to customer service, to skilled trades. And we're opening up a set of green professions now as well. Um, and the secret sauce of that bootcamp is that we have, it's activity-based. So we've understood exactly what are the activities that a person in this role, like let's say it's a Java developer, what are the daily activities that you do as a Java developer? And what of those activities really differentiate between a high performer and a lower performer? And then for those, and we call them our breakdown moments, how do you interweave the technical skills, the behavioral skills, and the mindsets together in how we teach each activity? And the reason why that's different is that a lot of training tends to focus on the technical side. And then there's this quote unquote, soft skills side that is off to the side and we're supposed to sort of learn it and hopefully these two things meet. People don't learn that way. People learn the quote unquote mindset and behavioral skills in a technical context. That's how you develop muscle memory. Um, so that's the boot camp. And then in parallel, we have social support services. And the simple reason there is you can't focus on your learning if you're worrying about where your child will have dinner that night. It just doesn't happen. So we have mentorship, we have stipends. Um, and then once they complete the program, they interview with our employer partners. And then once they're on the job, we measure the return on investment. So we're tracking multiple metrics. 
And it's all seven of those things together that make generation work. If you pull out any one of them, then we lose the impact completely. Got it. So there are a whole constellation of things that you're bringing together. Now to do that, it sounds like it might cost a fair amount of money and take a lot of resources. How do you manage to pay for all of that? Because again, it sounds like what you're doing is you're helping a lot of people, but those people themselves can't pay, can they? That is correct. You know, so um, in for 99% of our programs, um, it is free to our learners. Um, and so we finance it through a combination of employer payments, government funding, and philanthropy. Um, what is really important to us is that our learners are able to access these programs because, I mean, frankly, and let's talk about our learners for just a moment, right? You know, so our learners across our 15 countries, you know, so 93% of them are unemployed when they come to us. The other 7% have like part-time gig work. Um, they, you know, the vast majority have only a secondary school degree um, and the rest have some level of technical vocational. We do have some learners with university degrees, um, for example, in countries like Spain and Italy, just the nature of unemployment there, it's, it's quite significant. And so we have university graduates as well. Um, and 40% of them have dependents, over 50% are female, over 55% are female. And they are all facing adversity. I mean, genuinely, they have overcome an Olympics literally just to be able to get to our program. And so, we are fully focused on how do we enable them to be successful in the program and to thrive. So we continue to support them in the three to six months after they're placed on the job with mentorship. Um, and we are continuously seeking ways to support the entire enterprise to, by doing predictive analytics and a variety of other things so that we can support even greater success profiles like these moving forward. Um, in terms of our cost per learner, so it obviously varies by country, right? Um, but you know, it's in it's in the you know low hundreds in some of our countries, and it is you know, and it's you know could be you know three to six thousand um, dollars in other countries. But one of the things that strikes me is that when it comes to the cost, the cost is going to vary, but the benefits are also going to vary. It's probably unlikely that the benefits are going to be smaller in one of the high cost countries than in the low cost country. And in fact, instead of looking just at the overall kind of, uh, I guess, uh, raw number, it would be more about thinking about what is in our, our commercial world, the customer acquisition cost to lifetime value, except in this case, it's not customer acquisition cost, it's career acceleration cost. And lifetime value is not lifetime value in terms of revenues, but lifetime value in terms of how that person's life has been improved. How do you think about that ratio? That's a great question. Um, when we started the work of Generation, we were struck by how often impact in this space is measured on the basis of inputs, You know, so the number of learners trained. I cannot tell you how often data around employment rates, income level, pre and, 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 and post is just absent in workforce systems. Um, so we actually developed uh, a total cost of ownership metric so that we could better assess our own effectiveness. And so this is, and so we, we call this cost per employed day. 
Mm -hmm. right? So when you take the cost per student um, and the graduation rate and the job placement rate and the retention rate on the job, you know, so retention at six months or retention at one year, you know, so our goal is how do we get that number to be as close to a dollar as possible, right? We also look at the wage to cost ratio. So what was the cost, you know, so what, what's, what, what is your income in your starting job divided by the cost of training you and placing you in that role? Um, and so these are really important metrics for us. And genuinely, we believe that if overnight, if there was one thing that overnight public and private funders could do that would change the way the system would work, it would be using metrics like cost per employed day and wage to cost ratio. Absolutely. As the old expression goes, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And in all of these systems, whether they are business systems or philanthropic systems, that which is measured and rewarded will tend to grow. And so that's why I think it's so important that you're focused on the outcome and not just the short-term outcome, but the long-term outcome. Exactly. And I can very easily see how if you're looking at the cost per employed day, and you're saying we're trying to get it below a dollar a day. And meanwhile, the wages that folks are earning on average are going to end up being, you know, maybe $10 a day, maybe $100 a day. The overall cost of the program, once it's amortized over that impact, is minuscule and could easily be borne by the employer or the philanthropist or the government or what have you. That's very much why we spend as much time as we do focused on the return on investment metrics. You know, so. Um, for example, for an employer, in order to make the case to an employer, why should you invest in this? Right? You know, so we look at, well, what's your cost per hire today? You know, so when you actually look at, you know, you have to do 10 interviews in order to be able to hire one person. If you look at the productivity, like how long does it, how many months does it take to be able to ramp up someone to what you consider to be average productivity for that role in, at that tenure. When you look at attrition, right? You know, so in, at three months, how many of those whom you hired have you lost? So we actually map out that entire chain so that we can say to an employer, this is actually the true cost of what you incur relative to what you get from a generation graduate. Um, and that ROI case is very central to how we operate. And it's about how do you beat the rate continuously so that employers change their behavior of whom they hire and why they hire. Well, let's talk about the growth of generation then, because as you mentioned, you've helped 43,000 people, which is pretty astonishing. But I'm guessing that that number of people has grown over time and perhaps even been accelerating over time. I think you said you'd founded Generation in 2015. How has the organization grown? I assume you didn't found it in 15 different countries. What has that growth path been like and where do you think it's going from here? Absolutely. So when we began, we started in five countries. So the US, Spain, Mexico, India, and Kenya. And we very specifically chose them because we wanted diversity in geography so that we could understand what was universal and what's context specific um, in our methodology. Um, so for the first two to three years, you know, we were focused on proving this thing works. Then in 2018, um, began a massive growth spurt and we literally expanded to eight countries in about 18 months. Wow. That was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. 
Um, and we learned very important lessons from it. You know, I, I have a belief that if something's painful, you had best learned from it. Um, so tremendous learning experience. Um, I think we, you know, and so now, you know, now I, I would say to you that we're sort of at a pace of two to three countries per year. I mean, obviously co with COVID, we, we, you know, we obviously slowed that down during the pandemic period. Um, but roughly our now pace of growth is about two to three per year. Um, and we're, but we're very focused now on deepening our presence in each of our existing countries. And deepening for us means, can we fill 10 to 15% of annual vacancies for a given profession in a given city or in a given region? That for us says, we really moved the needle in terms of what hiring looks for for that profession. So that's very much our goal now. Um, but yes, and then and today, generation across the across the fifteen countries, we're about three hundred people, um, uh, and um, and we're and we have seventy partners uh, with whom we work to implement our programs. Because one one of the hallmarks of generation is that you will very you will very rarely walk into a generation school, right? You know, we partner with other institutions to embed our methodology in their work, because that's what makes most sense when you're seeking to scale. Absolutely. And this really ties in with some of the things that we describe when we talk about blitz scaling, and especially blitz scaling in the social sector, which is finding ways to expand by leveraging other people's resources. It's so difficult to get the funders or the revenue to pay for explosive growth when you cannot promise people, hey, someday this investment that you're making will be worth billions of dollars to you. And so it's much more effective to draw on the network of partners to grow. When you were growing, it sounds like there's been a very explosive growth period from 2018 to today. What were some of those important lessons that you learned from those painful learning opportunities? What are the things that surprised you the most that you wish you'd known in 2018 when you started out? Chris, we probably don't have enough time to go through this all. <laughs> <laughs> a few of the highlights then. Yeah, I mean, so look, um, when I think about our challenges over the period, right? You know, so in the beginning it was, how do we recruit enough learners? Because no one knew what generation was. We could be some fly-by-night operator, you know. So the first challenge was, you know, hey, we're credible and, you know, please learn, you know, how do we recruit? Then it became, all right, how do we make sure that we're mobilizing enough jobs? You know, so one of the things when you now start to scale at a much faster pace is, you know, the rate limiting step is not the learner. The rate limiting step is the jobs in which we will place them because we can never get out of whack. We can't be in a situation where we have, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people coming into our program and we haven't mobilized the job. So it's right. how do you really get good at mobilizing jobs? And I think one of the things we've learned is how do we work with, um, I'll call them aggregators, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, companies, you know, so for example, tech companies who have tools and platforms whereby they have customers who need people who know how to use that tech company's tools and platforms and services. Like a Salesforce, for example. For example, right? And so working with institutions like that to be able to reach many more employers. Um, and in particular, how to break through with small and medium-sized employers was 
it, it continues to be something that we are evolving on. Because this is, in many countries, small and medium enterprises, they represent the bulk of employment in the private, in, in the private economy. And so going and trying to do these onesies and twosies with regards to job gathering, that's incredibly intensive. So we have now done everything from using data sets around job vacancies to working through the aggregators to working through the small and medium sized industry associations to you name. I mean, there are just a number of things that we have tried. Um, and then so that's the how do you mobilize enough jobs? And then comes the quality assurance. Like, how do you make sure in every generation classroom in every city in every country that we are delivering the same generation quality experience and you know this is not a you know th this this problem is one that is not unique to what we are facing you know there are many others who also grapple with this question um and so we've put in a number of interventions to support us there um we also uh, last year we expanded our learner to also including those who are mid-career so those who are in their 40s 50s and who have lost their jobs due to automation or digitization um, so how do we also support a learner who has a very different life experience um, and then lastly and this is the most important one for us um, we began working much more intensively with governments um, and what that means is, in some cases, um, embedding our methodology inside public vocational systems. Um, in other cases, it was working with training providers who are receiving government funding in order to be able to improve their employment and income outcomes. But all of these things require us to adjust the playbook. You know, so the seven steps are always the seven steps, but how we execute it is what is what varies. And I'm struck by the many parallels between your experience and the experience of those more traditional commercial for-profit entrepreneurs, because, you know, think about all the different companies that have to balance supply and demand to manage the liquidity in the marketplace of connections, if you will, to make sure that the supply doesn't outstrip demand or vice versa. And they face very similar challenges. It sounds like have, have adopted very similar solutions and interventions. The other thing, of course, is that I think is a bit more unique when it comes to the social sector is the fact that you're working with the governments, because in many ways, the governments are the folks who capture the value from the various positive externalities you generate. We're so used to negative externalities, but generation really creates a set of positive externalities. And there's some where the value is being accrued by the, the, the learner and they can't pay but that's fine that's the whole reason this exists some is being given to the employers because they're able to find employees that can help them build their business and they're helping to achieve diversity equity and inclusion goals and other things like that and certainly the employers pay some but at the end of the day there is just tremendous positive externalities that are being captured by the government because there are fewer programs to provide social support for people who are now gainfully employed. And there's money and revenue that's coming into the government because of taxes, whether VAT income or what have you. So I think it's really smart that you're working with the government since they're the ones who are benefiting from the work that you're doing. Absolutely. You know, I think we came to this realization around 2018, um, which was, our true goal is to partner with governments to support them to shape the system of 
workforce. And so the vast majority of learners and workforce funding is sitting in the public system. So we can knock ourselves out and train and place as many people as we want, but we will never move the needle of the system unless we can effectively partner with governments. Um, and so figuring out how we can support them through the work that we've done and by partnering with public vocational training providers or with those that are leveraging government funding, that for us is absolutely the only path to real impact. And I think that it is the case that you know, we sometimes see these entrepreneurs and they're ardent capitalists and they believe very strongly in free enterprise and they tend to take this almost anti-government approach. And I always tell them, well, hold on for a second. Why are you taking that approach? There are many things in this world, specifically because we're a civilized society, where government plays this absolutely crucial role in coordination and redistribution in being able to help people in ways that are not necessarily covered by the markets. And so I'm glad that you're really doing such a great job of leveraging those relationships. Absolutely. Um, and there is much more that remains to be done. You know, I think, um, as is always the case, uh, the more that you do, you, the more that you, that you realize you have yet to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're very focused now on how can we make our tools and methodologies as easy as possible for our partners to use such that it just becomes seamless in terms of how they can leverage it. Now, we were introduced by our mutual friend, Rick, and it was because you had been thinking about the topic of blitzscaling in the social sector. And of course, that's something that I'm interested in. I like to joke that I'm like the old movie character Beetlejuice, if you say blitz scaling three times quickly, I will magically appear. And Should I, would I do that? <laughs> absolutely. Well, I'm already here, but I would love to hear sort of A, you know, your reactions to the concept of blitz scaling in the social sector. B, what are some of your thoughts in that area? And again, if you disagree with things that I've said, that's absolutely okay as well. In fact, I'm hoping to learn since I'm not the person with the direct experience. Um, so the way this came about, um, and Mariana Eskandar, who's the CEO of, of Harambe, and I co-wrote an article in Fast Company um, in March on this topic. Um, you know, both of us had been in discussions with funders, board members, other stakeholders, who kept asking us the question of, you know, how do you 10x? How do you 100x what you're doing? If you were a Silicon Valley unicorn, what would your approach be? And, you know, and we kind of, we were on a call and we, were, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, thank you, no, thank you, right? You know, it's essentially, unless we are able to partner with governments, there is no path, you know? So the where, where we vary is, is the following, you know, of course we want to serve more people, you know, who doesn't want to serve more people between us, we've served a million people actually, but our goal is not market domination. Our goal is to be a system shaper and that requires a very different operating model. Um, so for us, scale is not only defined by the number of learners we serve, it is the number of policies that we've been able to change and how we've been able to change those policies. It's about creating the data fact base that results in the changing of fund flows. So let's stop funding on the basis of learners trained and let's start funding on the basis of employment and income outcomes. 
it's about creating a data set and working with governments to create a data set that results in very different types of decisions being made. So that more holistic thinking is in our mind what is so important about thinking about what blitz scaling really means in a social sector context, whether it's education, healthcare, or workforce. Wow, here I was expecting you to disagree. And in fact, I completely agree. Uh, I sometimes feel like Reed and I have to apologize to the world because it's not that people are taking our ideas and running with them and causing problems. It's that people are taking the first derivative of our ideas or the Cliff's Notes version of our ideas and running with them. And it sounds like you're experiencing the same thing that a lot of entrepreneurs do in the for-profit world, which is just people blindly think, hey, let's just get big fast. How do we get to scale as quickly as possible? They never pause to ask, what is the purpose of getting to scale? What is the benefit of getting to scale? What are the long-term trends or ways that we're reshaping the market as a result of scale that lead to a better set of outcomes? And I think that that is much better captured in the set of things that you described. What are the changes to policy? How are we reshaping the market? Than the purely numerical measure of how many people went through our program, it doesn't matter whether or not they actually benefited. But exactly. sadly, people so often take this shortcut and just look at this one metric and optimize for that one metric. That's absolutely right. I, if the system worked effectively, then organizations like Generation would need to exist. Right. You know, so the goal is actually to ultimately put ourselves out of business, if you will, right? Because we've been able to effectively work with governments to change the system. Um, and that's very much what we see as the path. Um, you know, it is, you know, obvious, we think of this very much in two phases, right? You know, so obviously when you're getting started with whatever is the new innovation that you're putting forth in the social sector, you do have to think about, you know, does it work? How many people have gone through it so that I know that it works, right? But then once you've done that, once you've actually proven it, and, you know, and, and in our case, you know, like in 2018, we, you know, we'd been working then in multiple countries. We'd had, um, you know, several thousand people who have gone through our program. We'd been working across multiple professions. And so we got to the realization, okay, this works. But now the way to scale it is by partnering with governments to actually do that. And we have to do that even more now because the effect of the pandemic, you know, which we haven't talked about yet, it, you know, the pandemic just made this problem a lot more acute because it resulted in a lot more unemployment. Um, and so governments now have to act with even greater dexterity to be able to support the legions of unemployed to be able to be trained and placed in often new careers than the ones that they were in. Well, I think you just made a brilliant segue to the next topic, which is this global pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic has had this tremendous negative impact all over. There are certainly people who have benefited, and we can certainly discuss that if you want. But what's really happened is tremendous unemployment, tremendous dislocation, tremendous personal loss. How has the pandemic affected the work that you're doing? And maybe on a personal level, where were you when it first struck you that this was going to have this kind of impact? How did you personally adapt and adjust to it? Great question. Um, so let me take the first one and then I'll share where where I was during that fateful third week of March. Um, but uh, so 
first and foremost, um, obviously, many more people became unemployed. Um, and the people who became unemployed are very much the people whom we serve, right? You know, so it's the youth, it's women, it is also the mid-career population in their 40s and 50s, you know, who lost their jobs. Um, and more so because now suddenly all, there's such a broad spectrum of people who became unemployed, many of whom have years of experience in given professions. And so the people we serve were suddenly now at the, you know, even more at the back of the queue, if you will, in terms of whom employers would immediately look at. Because when you have tremendous variety in the profiles and you have someone who has 10 years of experience in this and worked here and has the CV that looks like what the employer will want to hire, then they're no longer ready or willing to take a chance on someone who doesn't have that pedigree. Um, so it became much worse for our population and our population became much bigger is the short end of that. Um, in the recovery, we've also seen now, um, we have much greater emphasis on our tech and healthcare professions relative to our customer service and skilled trade professions for the obvious reasons, because in the rebound, these are the ones that um, have greater demand. Um, we are also happily seeing a, in some, particularly in Europe, um, a bit more of a surge on green jobs because now with the build back better view, um, there's a desire um, in some countries to be able to ensure that that's a green recovery as well. Um, and at the same time, we've also seen now governments reach out um, as well because they're trying to find these solutions. So that's what's happened. I will though hasten to add, um, we've been tracking vacancies, right? And so even, you know, so even in December of last year, the number of job vacancies were still like 30 to 50% of what they were pre-COVID. Right now, particularly in April and May, we are seeing in some countries that vacancies are starting to reapproach their original levels, but that's not always the case. Like in the UK, in Spain, we're actually seeing a much lower recovery than we are in some other countries. So that was on that front. Um, and then on top of it, obviously we moved entirely online um, and uh, we also began doing things that we hadn't expected to do. You know, So if you will recall that Italy was one of the hardest hit countries um, and that was you know, in, starting in February, going into March. Um, and because of that, we partnered with the Ministry of Health and the Nurse Association to actually offer uh, healthcare workers training in how to treat COVID-19 patients and how to care for themselves while they did that. And so we ended up training 260,000 healthcare workers over the course of last year on the, on how to treat and care for COVID-19 patients. And, you know, and that was not something that we anticipated doing. And we literally, you know, in the span of weeks, were able to pull this together um, so that we could contribute to the community as well. And, you know, we, so we did this in Italy, we did this in India, um, in Kenya, in France, in Spain. Um, so, you know, also we just, as is always the case, you know, we looked at the situation and just thought, you know, how can we best deploy our resources, even though this is not usually what we do. Right. Um, in terms of myself, so the very last trip I made was uh, to the UK in February, at the end of February. And I remember wearing a mask during that trip um, and people in the airport looking at me oddly. 
Um, but it, it was it was became very clear. It was the second third week of March was when it was clear that everything must change, um, and it did. And the remarkable thing is, of course, it's created this tremendous hardship, but you found ways to really help an even larger number of people. I mean, before we were talking about the 43,000 learners. Now I learned that there are hundreds of thousands of people that you've helped teach various skills during the pandemic. I mean, the scale is even greater than I had known before. So that's a remarkable achievement. I think, um, I mean, we have an amazing team, right? And the way that they pulled together to be able to craft this. I mean, so the way we did the trainings was um, a lot of the COVID-19 guidance, you know, in February was sort of in manuals and dry PowerPoint slides. And so we wanted to create something that was based on generation principles, which is demonstration. So we found star nurses in each of the countries and they would demonstrate you know, everything from how do you put on PPE to what do you do if there's a tear to how do you, how do you use the restroom, right? When you're wearing all this PPE you know, to how do you deal with ventilation and infection control and all of these things. Um, and we're grateful that we were able to make what little contribution we were able to um, for those whom we supported. Now, I think this is something that's even a more of a challenge for leaders in the social sector. The job of being a CEO, executive director, founder, whatever you want to call it, is all consuming under normal circumstances, but even more so when you are really trying to accomplish a very important mission that touches so many lives and makes such a big difference. So how do you manage to find any sort of balance or uh, ability to live a life as well as doing the work that you do? What are some of the techniques that you use to stay sane and be able to both have this incredible impact on the world, but hopefully also you know, live a reasonable and happy life? That is an awesome question. <laughs> and if the so, answer is no, I mean, no that's so, okay too. But. Look, um, I mean, obviously the past year has taken a tremendous toll on everyone. Yes. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter and she keeps me sane. Um, and whenever I'm feeling super stressed, I hug her and I feel better. And, you know, so it, it's gotten to the point now that when she's walking by and she sees me starting to look a bit stressed, she's like, mommy, do you need a hug? <laughs> what a wise girl. My goodness. So it's it's a bit like Avatar, you know, where the, um, I forget the names of the creatures, but they plug in, you know, so they- and, and The naive, the, yes. Yes, the they, they, they plug in. It, that's kind of what it's like. <laughs> And that's something that's so important. And obviously, you're fortunate enough to have your daughter right there. Obviously, there are folks who are, are cut off. I have friends who live alone, and it's certainly been quite a challenge for them during this time. But we do get so much energy just out of human contact. Absolutely. And hopefully, we find ways beyond just these Zoom meetings in order to have that kind of contact. Inshallah. Inshallah. Absolutely. Well, I have taken up a lot of your evening. Are there any questions I have failed to ask that I should have asked that we could still cover? Chris, you've been pretty comprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Mona, again, I want to thank you so much 
A, for being willing to come on and have this discussion, share with me some of the learnings. I've learned more about blitz scaling in the social sector than I knew before. So that was incredibly helpful. But B, for the tremendous work that you're doing for the tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of lives that you're touching and helping with. So I, I can only thank you on behalf of all the listeners. And maybe if you have any last words of wisdom you want to leave us with, you can share them now. Um, so first of all, thank you for the invitation um, to, to, to speak with you. Um, you know, my, my only reflection is that sometimes when we think about these macro challenges of unemployment and systems, et cetera, it can be overwhelming. Um, and so think about what in your corner, given what you do, I mean, just if, you know, if, if you're at a company, you know, how you can take a chance on a different kind of profile that makes a contribution, right? Um, if you are, you know, if, if you are funding uh, nonprofits uh, through, through grants, you know, how you can think differently about the nature of the relationship and the kind of impact that you're looking for above and beyond the number of beneficiaries served. All of these things make a difference. Mona, thank you so very much. On behalf of Mona, this is Chris Ye, and thank you for listening.